uh, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Um, as most of you know, we are in a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke, and for this morning, or this evening, rather, we've arrived at uh, verse 9 of chapter 18. I'm going to uh, be teaching through verse 17, so let me read those verses to you. And they read, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have um, raised up uh, holy men to record your words in the sacred scriptures that we could, 2,000 years later, glean from it and see um, your heart for humanity, your compassion and your mercy, and the way that we can be united and reconciled to God through you. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, we would all be encouraged today, we would be convicted. Um, if there's any sense of um, self-sufficiency in us, I pray that you would extinguish that through this teaching, and those who have not come into relationship with you, I pray that you would capture their hearts this evening and save them. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, right. Well, good evening once again. My name is Raymond. I'm one of the preachers here at Shorebreak, as most of you know. And um, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be preaching a few times. Alex will be preaching a few times as Leo and Karina are traveling and getting some much-needed refreshment. So it's always an honor and a privilege to um, stand and proclaim God's word. And um, I just hope that you all are, are blessed as much as I am blessed as I study um, passages like these and uh, learn and am refreshed and convicted once again. And so um, I just pray that you would, again, be encouraged um, as you listen this evening. Um, this passage really deals with the topic of who can be right with God and how can we be right with God. Obviously, throughout the world, there are many different religions and even subtle variations on the same religion. You have Hinduism, but Buddhism is sort of like a heresy of Hinduism. And then you have various flavors of uh, Christianity or uh, 
self-identified Christianity, such as Mormonism, even Jehovah Witness um, religion, and they all point to subtly different ways of being right with God. And all of the world's religions, are we good? I check. Now, all of the world's religions, um, they are trying in some way to answer this question, how we can be right with God. Some of them actually will say, um, there's no way to know. Others will try to build a bridge of um, works-related righteousness or self-sufficiency to get to God. So it's instructive um, in this passage to see how Jesus answers the question, who could be right with God and how can they be right with God? And in a lot of ways, this passage is um, a carryover from verse 8, when Jesus said, as we saw last week, I tell you, uh, speaking of um, Jesus answering the prayers of his saints, he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so, in so many ways, this passage identifies and explains what kind of faith Jesus is looking for, what kind of faith is acceptable and pleasing to him. So, I'm going to just jump right into the text for this evening. And starting at verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, if you've uh, been with us throughout this sermon series, or if you've just ever read the Gospel of Luke before, you could already tell that Luke is declaring that the people Jesus is about to speak to are not righteous. Uh, and we can deduce that because throughout Luke's Gospel, there are people that he unequivocally refers to and commends as being righteous. Um, in Luke 1.6, he says that Zechariah, the priest, and his wife Elizabeth uh, were both righteous before God. Um, Luke 2.25 tells us about a man named Simeon who was one of the earliest people in history to place saving faith in Jesus. Um, Luke says that Simeon was righteous and devout. And then there was Joseph of Arimathea, and he was a member of the religious council known as the Sanhedrin, and Luke calls him a good and righteous man. Um, that's in Luke 23.50. So Luke is not averse to acknowledging people as righteous, uh, but here he censures those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Um, the word trusted in verse 9 is translated from the Greek word pytho. Um, this word can also be translated as convinced. It is often translated as convinced in the New Testament. So essentially, Jesus is speaking to people who are convinced of their own righteousness. Um, so convinced, it seems, that they essentially didn't understand that God's grace is a prerequisite for God's acceptance. Uh, but what we need to understand, or basically what Luke wants us to understand, is that true righteousness is generated through a relationship with God and is motivated by growing in that relationship with God. It is not from trying to gain or earn something from God. This is a righteousness that is totally God-generated and God-focused. It's not a self-generated, self-focused pursuit of moral excellence that obligates God to accept or commend anyone. 
Uh, this is why it is totally possible to be a quote-unquote good person and check all the right moral boxes and still be unacceptable to God. If God is both the cause and the object of someone's righteousness, uh, we know that we have a righteousness that is accepted by God because it is the very righteousness that God himself gives birth to within a person. Uh, the people who Jesus is addressing in today's text had a righteousness of their own, and that is pretty much to say they had no righteousness at all. So Luke goes on to say that Jesus' self-righteous hearers treated others with contempt. Uh, this is a sin that even those who are truly righteous can be guilty of. Uh, that's because, as we all know, there are times in our Christian lives when spiritual growth and maturity can come at an agonizingly slow pace. Uh, but there are other times when growth and godliness seems to come rapidly. And it's during these times that we notice that uh, it has become a reflex to pursue good deeds and second nature to shun sins that we once cherished. It's often during these times and seasons that we forget that it was God who produced that righteousness in us, and it is him who maintains and increases righteousness in us. Uh, when we forget this fact, this is when it becomes easier for us to become judgmental uh, towards other Christians who habitually commit sins that we would never dream of committing, or take their sin to an extent that we cannot fathom ever going. And so when we notice righteous indignation rise up in us against anyone else, uh, let's remember the words of Jesus that he uttered in Luke uh, 6.37, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. We are called to judge behavior not judge people, and judging people is tantamount to condemning them. Uh, when we entertain condemning thoughts against another person, uh, that's a clear sign of spiritual insobriety because when we engage in such behavior, uh, we forget that there are things in our own lives that people could condemn. Uh, certainly things that God could condemn if he chose to be as ingracious towards us as we can sometimes uh, be guilty of being towards others. Uh, and so we should not have contempt for people who are practicing sin. We should have concern for those people. Uh, we should be concerned for those people because of the harm they are inflicting upon themselves and upon others uh, with their behavior, and we should lovingly seek to restore them in partnership with God and with an attitude of patience, love, and humility. Uh, but if we have a condemning attitude toward uh, our brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, uh, we risk receiving the same rebuke from the Lord that he is administering to others in today's parable. Uh, now, in Jesus' parable, he illustrates his rebuke of uh, self-righteousness using a Pharisee um, as a bad example. And, of course, many among the Pharisees had no interest in restoring anyone who was sinful, um, and they reveled in the idea that they were morally superior to those around them. And although hypocrisy was known to run rampant among them, uh, their group was also, uh, also included many who were known to be the pinnacle of external moral achievement. 
so although it's not certain that Jesus was speaking to Pharisees when he told this parable, at least his audience would have understood that if the Pharisees are not justified uh, before God for their moral accomplishments, neither is anyone else. So Jesus begins the parable by saying, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Um, now, there are uh, four distinct groups of people that Jesus highlights in this um, story. Uh, there are Pharisees, there are extortioners, there are adulterers, and there are tax collectors. Um, Jesus portrays a Pharisee, of course, who cannot fathom that Yahweh, the one true God, accepts people from these other groups. And it's also unimaginable to him uh, that Yahweh would not accept him. This Pharisee's mindset is contrary to the redemptive reality uh, that was on display to this point in Jesus' ministry. And we see this redemption highlighted throughout Luke's gospel, and we're going to take a look at some of those redemptive events. Uh, we've already seen in Luke's gospel, for example, God's redemption in the lives of extortioners. Um, extortion, uh, of course, can be carried out um, by various kinds of people in various ways. Um, but in Luke's gospel, we see that soldiers who enforced uh, imperial Roman rule in Israel were some of the main culprits in extortionist activity. Essentially, soldiers were the primary police force where they were stationed, and they played a tremendous role in maintaining uh, peace and security. However, uh, scholars note that their income, their payment for doing that was quite uh, minimal. And so apparently it was not uncommon for them to supplement their income by extorting money for those under their supervision. And apparently they used um, threats of violence, among other means, of securing um, payments from people. And so in Luke uh, chapter 3, we see that some of these soldiers repented because of the preaching of John the Baptist, who of course was Jesus' herald and his forerunner. Sorry, I don't know if I'm doing something to make that happen or not. But. Um, when John preached about the wrath of Jesus that would destroy the unrepentant, we see soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? And John said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Um, Luke also records in Acts chapter 10 uh, that the first, uh, the first time the apostle Peter preached the gospel directly to a Gentile, a Gentile audience, that audience included uh, a military commander and one of his soldiers, both of whom Luke describes in the book of Acts as devout. In Acts 10.37, we find out the likely reason these Gentiles were devout. Uh, Peter says to them, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. So they were familiar with John, John the Baptist's preaching, possibly because he planted the seeds of their faith. Another group that the Pharisee maligns in Jesus' parable are adulterers. And apparently, uh, 
In ancient Israel, one of the primary forms that adultery took was through prostitution. And we see this discussed in the Old Testament prophets, specifically uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and also in the book of Psalms, or sorry, Proverbs. Proverbs. Um, so the question is, can adulterous people be acceptable to God? Um, in Matthew 21, 31, Jesus says, quote, the prostitute go into the kingdom of God, unquote, because they believe John the Baptist's preaching. So indeed, adulterers can still be forgiven and redeemed. Um, what about tax collectors? This group uh, was also known for obtaining money using illegal means. They were, of course, working on behalf also of imperial Rome. And in the ancient world, uh, systems of checks and balances were not prevalent for gov government officials. And so the level of honesty that each official operated with depended upon his own scruples. So not surprisingly, many tax collectors abused their power by adding to people's charges and pocketing the extra money. Yet we see that even this group responded to John the Baptist's preaching. Uh, Luke 3, uh, verses 12 and 13 says, quote, The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And John said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. So throughout Jesus' ministry, even beginning as far back as John the Baptist, we see that tax collectors, adulterers, and extortioners are forgiven and accepted by God. So how about Pharisees? Well, there's, of course, a reason that Jesus used them as a bad example when he wanted to correct those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. No group of people represented this spiritually blind state more than the Pharisees. They were not only certain of their own moral superior superiority, but they wanted everyone around them to be so certain. Uh, they could not accept even the idea that anyone saw them as anything less than the standard of religious virtue. Um, and, of course, there are numerous examples of this. Um, in Luke 20, Jesus told another parable to confront uh, the chief priests and scribes, most of whom were probably Pharisees. And just to summarize, uh, the parable was basically uh, making the point that God would ultimately take away stewardship of his kingdom from them and give it to others. And when Jesus told this parable to the uh, scribes and the priests, they responded to the idea that they would be rejected by exclaiming, surely not. That's in Luke 20, 16. And in Luke 10, a lawyer, and again, that's, this is probably a Pharisee, um, asked Jesus for his opinion about how to inherit eternal life. And Luke 20, uh, sorry, Luke 10, 29 shows us that the lawyer's motivation was that he was, quote, desiring to justify himself. And in Luke uh, 16, 15, Jesus bluntly says to the Pharisees, quote, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. So we've, we've been seeing that the adulterers, the tax collectors, and the extortionists repented uh, because they believed the preaching of John and were baptized. But Luke 7.30 says, quote, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves 
not having been baptized by John. So the Pharisees rejected God's purpose and God rejected them. Uh, the reason why the people who the Pharisees treated with contempt were the very people who were accepted by God is that the so-called contemptible people submitted to and trusted in God's means of being accepted. But what was it about themselves that the Pharisees were trusting in to endear themselves to God? The question. In our parable in Luke 18, the Pharisee says in verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's the first thing. The Pharisees didn't want to be, quote-unquote, like other men, and they also didn't associate with anyone who was reputedly a sinner. In other words, they didn't associate with so-called contemptible people. They believed that shunning sinful people was one of the ways of keeping themselves pure, and they heavily criticized Jesus for associating with such people. In Luke 5, when Jesus ate with tax collectors, quote, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's in Luke 5.30. In Luke uh, 7.39, uh, when a sinful woman kissed Jesus' feet, a Pharisee said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In Luke 15, we, when Jesus was again hanging out with tax collectors, says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the Pharisees also trusted in their spiritual disciplines, something else they were expecting God to commend them for. Uh, but these disciplines were deficient for the purpose of being reconciled to God, and in many cases, they were a distraction from true fellowship with God. Uh, the Pharisee in the parable says, I fast twice a week. But we see in Luke 5 that the Pharisees were preoccupied with fasting for God when they should have been feasting with Jesus, who is, of course, God in the flesh. In the parable, the Pharisee also says, I give tithes of all that I get. But tithing uh, doesn't earn anyone's acceptance before God, as we've seen already in Luke uh, 1142, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So I just want to be perfectly clear about this, and I say this with um, all love and respect. Jesus is not impressed with your fasting, and he's not impressed with your tithing. And Jesus is not impressed with any good deed or any spiritual discipline that you practice. Um, and that is not to say at all that he is not pleased with those things. And of course, if you um, tithe out of obedience to what God has asked you to give, he is pleased with that. And if you fast, if you skip a meal in order to pray and intercede on behalf of burdens and causes that God has placed on your heart, he is pleased with that. Um, but why would God be impressed with those things when those are fruits in your life that he himself produced? If God was going to be impressed with anyone for those things, he would be impressed with himself for producing 
those characteristics and those fruits in your life. So is he pleased? Yes, he is pleased. But is he impressed? He is not impressed. He is not applauding you and bestowing more upon you as far as grace is concerned because of your activity. So, um, but it is unfortunate, I have to say, it's unfortunate that most of the time when I'm preaching about some wrong idea uh, that Jesus had to confront in the first century, um, I also have to point out the fact that uh, these very same ideas are very much prevalent today, including in the church today. Um, there are many people in our country who ostensibly are part of the church who have a pharisaical attitude about how one obtains eternal blessing from God. Uh, according to researcher George Barner, 58% of self-identified Christians say that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. And 66% say that Having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. So in the final analysis, these Christians aren't placing their faith in Jesus. They're placing their faith in themselves. Um, in fact, they are placing their faith in their faith and in their good works. Uh, they believe that this is what constitutes righteousness. Um, but it's actually a good thing, and it's good news that God is not impressed with yours or my good works, uh, because the reality is there is nothing we can do to make him love us more than he already loves us, and there is nothing we can do to make him love us any less than what he already loves us. Uh, that's because he already loves us uh, perfectly, he loves us fully, and he loves us eternally. So if you're a Christian and you're you're counting on your good works and your spiritual disciplines to um, curry more favor from God, more love from God, I would just admonish you to stop trying to earn what you already have in abundance. Um, if you're not a Christian, of course, you haven't entered into a love relationship with God, you haven't been forgiven of your sins, and you are not accepted by God. So the question is, how can you be accepted by God? Look at verses 13 and 14. And Jesus continues his parable by saying, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, so those who refuse to repent of their sins and refuse to entrust themselves to Jesus will not be forgiven of their sins, no matter how uh, small those sins are alleged to be. And those who repent of their sins and entrust their lives to Jesus will be forgiven of their sins, no matter how large and how grotesque those sins may have been. The tax collector in this parable, like so many in real life, humbled himself and repented. And Jesus shows us further the kind of humility that God exalts in the next sequence. Um, verses 
15 through 17 say, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so how does this story connect to uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? Uh, To help us understand that, I want us to look back at Luke chapter 10. Um, There in verses 17 through 20, the disciples returned from a ministry trip that they had uh, been sent on by Jesus. He sent them to uh, preach the kingdom of God, heal the sick, and cast out demons. Uh, They were excited about all the work that they had um, accomplished um, on behalf of Jesus. But Jesus actually wanted to subdue their excitement for the good work that they had achieved. He said to them in Luke 10, 20, quote, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Then in verse 21 of Luke 10, he says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Um, Here Jesus uses the word children figuratively to speak about those who he was speaking to uh, in that passage. And uh, just to clarify, um, there is a difference between being childish and being childlike. Uh, childishness is rebuked in the Bible, and that is a characteristic of someone who refuses to pursue wisdom or to comply with wise instruction. The Bible in no way commands, commends, or encourages childishness, but Scripture does command childlikeness. Childlikeness. And childlikeness is the quality of someone who trusts without any hint of suspicion skepticism, or objection. It's the kind of uh, trust that most of us have in our parents uh, before we become teenagers and find out that we know a lot better than our parents do. Am I right, teenagers? Teenagers here? (laughs) No, not quite. Uh, But childlikeness is the disposition that Christians are to have towards God in every respect, especially when it comes to the way we are to pursue being pleasing to him. And so rather than hindering the children, Jesus' disciples and everyone there to witness the scene should have been imitating those children. The children were going to Jesus humbly and helplessly. There is no other acceptable way to approach Jesus. There isn't one way for children to approach Jesus and another way for adults to approach Jesus. So instead of uh, this humble approach, Um, Pharisees and their disciples pursued their own complex, formulaic, and self-satisfying way of making themselves pleasing to God. Most of the world's religious believers do exactly the same thing. And for all those efforts, they'll have nothing to show for it at the resurrection when Jesus will separate his redeemed people from those who will be damned. 
only those who repent of their sins and entrust themselves to Jesus with childlike humility will be exalted in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, um, again, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so clear. Thank you that you do make a clear and gracious path for us to be reconciled to you. You don't ask us to jump through any hoops. You don't ask us to pick us up ourselves up by our bootstraps. You just ask us to humbly, with childlike faith, believe in your means of being reconciled to you, which is repentance and faith. And I just pray, Lord, that if there are those here who have not come into that saving relationship with you, they would receive your gracious offer. They would understand that it's that simple. Um, the gospel and the person and work of Jesus, I always say this, that is the only reality in existence. That sounds too good to be true, but actually is true. It is true. Lord, you... Uh, you didn't have to make it this simple, but um, you chose to do it. You chose to accomplish what we could never accomplish and to merit salvation on our behalf because we can't do it. And so even for those of us who do know you, I pray that we would be refreshed and encouraged in that reality. And we would, um, yes, try to obey you in every respect, but know that when we fail, your grace is sufficient and we can simply repent and keep moving forward in uh, pursuit of greater obedience and greater faithfulness and loyalty to you. Not because we have to earn it, not because you would be impressed by it, but because you would be pleased. And we want to please you, Lord. Yeah, thank you again for your gospel. Um, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.